Whether you're talking about a salamander, a tree lizard, one of those blue ones with the blue tails, or geckos, that particular image, that particular dream image has been of particular importance to me in my life as of late and frogs and tadpoles and such. The world is truly marvelous. A land of unlimited possibilities. Mumbling Planet is a production of the Atlanta Surrealist Group. And I'm your host, James Robert Foster. We begin with a foray into the jungle... We will make our way in and out of over the span of this journey. And as we make our way through what our first guest, Vittoria Lyon, calls a land of unlimited possibilities, we will spot a wild hazaka. We will see the name of the elephant that was Alvaro written in the book of all of the world. We'll make a pilgrimage to the bird kingdom. And we will, maybe, learn the lesson of the Hall of Gecko Tales in the rain cloud in the sky after the rain. Maybe we'll even discover what the blood of the rain, what the blood of the sky makes us after we've tasted it. So stay with us as we pack our hiking backpack. Take one more look back at what we're leaving behind. Turn and set out on a journey toward the unknown horizon. Somewhere out there on the edges. Mumbling planet. Stay with us.
Nation, the land of unlimited possibilities, speculative biologies as surrealist accomplices. In Futures of Surrealism, Gavin Parkinson demonstrates the immense contributions of the speculative futures and alternate histories of science fiction to mid-century surrealist thought. This warrants consideration in the light of growing academic interest in surrealism's zoological menageries, which can be said to possess an inherent speculative Darwinism. Fit into Freud's statement in Beyond the Pleasure Principle that biology is truly a land of unlimited possibilities, science fictional portrayals of hypothetical evolutionary trajectories are exemplars of what Franklin Rosemont termed popular accomplices of surrealism, and particularly its zoological imagination. Arguably the most significant are the Italian architect Luigi Serafini's Codex Serafinianus, a natural history encyclopedia of an apparent alternate dimension written in a fabricated language. After man, the Scottish paleontologist de Galdixon's speculative field guide to life on Earth 50 million years following the Anthropocene extinction. And the American science fiction and fantasy artist Wayne Barlow's expedition, the illustrated narrative of a 24th century voyage documenting the fauna of newfound planet Darwin IV. Jeff Vandermeer's 2014 novel, Annihilation, presents a more recent retreading of similar themes. With their shared predilections for frenetic hybridization, writhing growth, fantastic distortions of corporeal form, and the apparent absence of conceptual limitations among their inventive species, these works constitute daring visions of evolution imagined otherwise as the free association of living organisms. Crawling with the unease of life beyond boundaries, the promise of these wondrous animal forms is their position at the threshold of another possible world. For they are harbingers of the unquiet thought that a world of libidinal excess free from surplus repression is not merely a world to come, but inevitable, lying just over the horizon of accumulated capitalist debris. Life, to paraphrase Breton's dictum concerning beauty, must be convulsive, or it will not persist. Parkinson's account of the Paris Circle's intense attention to UFO literature, instigated by the flourishing of French translations of American pulp science fiction in the 1950s, strongly demonstrates surrealism's anticipation of utopian post-human futures. Breton's myth of the Great Invisibles, proposed in his 1942 Prolegomena, stands among the most fabled surrealist flights of sheer Darwinian fantasy. Beings ineffably more advanced and complex than humankind can completely escape man's sensory system of references, whose behavior is as strange to him as his may be to the mayfly or the whale. The great invisibles herald the complete dissentering of human consciousness. Yet as Parkinson diligently elaborates, surrealism sought such possible realms of unlimited imagination, its unseated elsewheres, not only in the far-flung reaches of outer space, but in the deep evolutionary past of life on Earth drawn to the lost worlds populated with forgotten prehistoric races of Lovecraftian fiction. Deep time, the abode of the most outlandish and inadmissible of the flora and fauna of surrealism, is arguably the exemplary elsewhere of all surrealist elsewheres where true existence is to be sought. The pre-originary time outside of time of the unconscious, and elsewhere that is, like the sunken lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria, to be found in the unseen and unexplored depths. Fundamentally, all such alternate narrations of life's history pivot upon the crucial and inescapable role of contingency in evolutionary processes, notably popularized by the late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould in his interpretation of the Burgess Shale, a fossil site in western Canada preserving thousands of exemplary specimens from the first major burst of multicellular animal forms. According to Gould, the truly radical promise of these 500 million year old relics of the Cambrian Sea floor Many bearing bizarre body plans, wholly unlike any animal alive today, 
lies in their ability to inspire contemplation that the path which led to the rise of our species is only one of innumerable outcomes the course of evolution may have taken. Somehow, out of the extreme diversification of anatomical forms present during the Cambrian explosion, manifested animals as singularly peculiar as Opabinia and Hallucigenia, the earliest ancestors of modern vertebrates, including ourselves, survived while others went extinct. When biological evolution is viewed from this remarkable standpoint, we gain understanding that human dominance was never an inevitable, preordained consequence but rather the incredibly unpredictable and improbable result of an exceptional string of accidents of history, a solitary branch in Borges' garden of forking paths. Most enticingly, Gould invites his readers to imagine replaying the tape of geological time, envisioning a multitude of equally plausible possible worlds that read like the best products of speculative fantasy. What if, he asks, modern seas teem with the strange spiny luaxes and comb-like archaeocyathids of the Cambrian rather than coral reefs? Or what if, impossibly further back, the eukaryotic cell, the building block of multicellular life, never emerged, and the lowly stromatolite were to remain the pinnacle of organisms at the far future time of the exhaustion of our sun? Let's suppose that the lethal impact of the Chicxulub meteorite 66 million years ago had not taken place, or that it had fallen deeper into the ocean mere moments later, softening its blow. A scenario explored quite literally by Dugald Dixon in his natural history of a reinvented Holocene saurian fauna, the new dinosaurs, and alternative evolution. Given the 170 million year long success of the non-avian dinosaurs, the likelihood is high that their descendants would have survived to the present, and opossum-sized creatures would have probably remained the peak of mammalian development. Surveying Gold's fabulously altered timelines, one can perhaps dream of no injury more severely corrosive to the narcissistic assumption, so eloquently articulated by Breton in Arcanum 17, that humanity is the chosen one of creation, entirely outside of and untouched by evolutionary processes. Contrary to social Darwinist distortions of the zoological world as inherently entrenching class, race, and sex oppression as natural facts of life, which currently monopolize the politicization of evolutionary thought, the possibility that social revolutions could lead to biological revolutions perpetually haunts radical fantasies. From the fanciful anti-lions and anti-whales, truly surrealist species coexisting with Charles Fourier's Harmonians to early Soviet experimental investigation into the cultivation of a perfectly mechanized proletarian body, there persists the sentiment that changes in economic conditions are capable of influencing, or perhaps may inevitably direct, the malleability of the psychological and physical configurations of organisms. In the 20th century context, much of this line of thought is traceable to Engels' unfinished hypothetical work on early human development. Specifically, his theorization that the anatomically modern human form is the product of the successive introduction of more complex modes of labor among hominids over time. In his interpretation, for instance, the creation of increasingly delicate stone tools constituted the environmental pressure that selected for the dexterous hand and organized labor in groups necessitated the emergence of detailed, articulate speech. The most far-reaching implication is that this is a continuing process, not limited to the Pleistocene hominid condition, and that future revolutions, introducing new modes of economic organization, have the potential to alter the course of future evolution. Believing that the surrealist revolution would inevitably precipitate a fundamental alteration in the human perception of dream states in relation to waking life, Breton ultimately borrows from this pre-established speculative motif. 
The contemporary Paris Surrealist Guizhou art beautifully traverses such intellectual threads in his lyrical journey, Instant Fossils of the Future, which describes how a careful urban explorer might happen across fossils of a utopian anterior future in plain sight. Within his phantasmagoric mental map of a reinvented stratigraphy, Girard imagines the wonder of finding the fossilized remains of one of Fourier's anti-lions near Cheval's ideal palace. Or better still, tombs containing the skeletons of the inhabitants of his phalanceries, featuring the bones making up the archibrod. The archibrod, Fourier's cosmology, being a tale ending in a claw-like grasping appendage evolved by his projected future humans. In radically imagining evolution otherwise, we simultaneously look back toward the most archaic past, and yet come up against clairvoyant foresight of the wreckage of the Anthropocene. Here I am indebted to what Ralph Ubel terms his sense of surrealism's prehistoric future or future's past, drawing from his reading of the apparent post-apocalyptic landscape of Magsar's syrup after the rain one. According to surrealism, it appears, if there is going to be a future at all following the era of planetary capitalist extermination, it will be prehistoric, in the sense of a perennial deep time populated by impossible outbursts of biological forms arising from zones of uninhibited desire, a second Cambrian explosion, if you will. If the history of life on Earth following the advent of the settler colonial period, arguably the original point of instigation of the worst animal die-offs since the Cretaceous tertiary event, has overwhelmingly been one of mass extinction and forced monotonization and standardization, the geological stratum following the Surrealist Revolution will be the opposite, one exemplified by limitless inventiveness and diversification. The speculative fauna that Serafini, Dixon, Barlow, and Vandermeer Mirage into existence celebrate different potential labyrinths and forking pathways taken by life, seizure-like in their free play with the rules of anatomy, and yet in Afterman and Annihilation specifically, they bear witness to the alienating absences of a world following human ex extinction or extirpation, a possibility devastatingly raised into collective consciousness with the Chernobyl exclusion zone and presently catastrophic climate disaster. To paraphrase Jennifer Fay's remarks on Herbert Ponting and Frank Hurley's early film images of famously human devoid Antarctica, all of the aforementioned works depict a natural history on the far side of human meaning, testing the limits of psychological and linguistic intelligibility. I might hypothesize for their mutual spiritual ancestor, René Lalou and Roland Topor's Fantastic Planet of 1973, a wonderfully animated meditation on surrealist exploration and Anthropocene extermination replete with twistedly bizarre architecture, psychedelic vegetation, and nightmarish creatures, tuned to a score with a distinctly extraterrestrial presence. According to Franklin Rosemont's conception of surrealist accomplices, it is those popular works which most vividly express a, quote, appetite for the impossible, lust for adventure, readiness for the marvelous, an appeal to exaltation, acceptance of risk, Insistence on emotions, experience of the hilt, and a passion for life lived wondrously on the brink, end quote, that capture the surrealist idiom to the fullest in mass culture. Albeit largely written without explicit authorial identification with surrealism, in my mind contemporary works of speculative evolutionary fantasy represent the most culturally accessible incarnations of surrealism's reinvented zoology and reinvented botany, to quote Luis Aragon. Its evolutionary processes rarefied through the margins of pre-conscious analogical thought, so manifest through such works as the proto-surrealist Maldoror and Rambo's Illuminations, the Magnetic Fields, the Immaculate Conception, and Benjamin Perry's Natural History, of course. 
But they're just seeing mental fleeting between animal, or in some cases human or vegetal analogs, the disorienting and striking life forms of Serapis, Codex, Afterman, Expedition, and Annihilation are identifiable as the products of primary processing, the pre-logical operation of thought governed purely by the pleasure principle. Oblivious to contradictions or barriers, they embody the sheer vigor and exuberance of existence, constructed from the unbridled flotation of libidinal energy between images and concepts, establishing their unmistakable character as Freudian dream creatures. The Codex Seraphinianus possesses the most extreme mutations, appearing as the farthest hallucinatory reaches of mimicry in nature. In the anti-encyclopedia's dedicated section on natural history, the quote-unquote reader is introduced to a species of fish who perfectly resemble pairs of human eyes when half-submerged, the head of a deer displayed as a potted plant with antlers sprouting leaves, and various hybrids of avian forms in their eggs, including a bizarre miniature of what appears to be a transitional form between birds and early hominids. The hind legs of a horse morph into a caterpillar, and a rhinoceros is shown whose horn and tail have fused into an overhanging mobile of a sort. Elsewhere, in a gallery of plants that seem made to accompany the nondescript flower of Freud's dream of his botanical monograph, an array of vegetal species spontaneously sprout the shapes of scissors, birds, matchsticks, pencils, ladders, and hook cages. In one of the most famous of the Codex's illuminations, in a series of sequential images, a human couple in the midst of making love is depicted fusing into an alligator, who then crawls off the bed. A disturbingly arousing synthesis of sex predation and the alchemical transmorphism of biological forms. In his introduction to the Codex, Italo Calvino characterized its universe's manner of generation as inherently teratological, a supposition evidenced by the apparent germinating role of its untranslatable curvilinear script, which appears animated by its own uncontrollable life force, whether vomited in its heart like ink slurry, carried off the page by tiny balloons, emerging spontaneously from the leaves of plants or springing up through cracks in a brick wall. Adorned throughout with evocative illustrations, heavily reminiscent of Haeckel's Kunstformen der Natur, and accompanied by a phylogenetic tree of its future bestiary with its own Bolinian classification system, assigned by whom, one wonders, the strange beauty of Afterman arises partly from its juxtaposition of a certain mimicry of classical Western scientific objectivity with the presumed extirpation of the observing human eye. Aesthetically, Dixon's evolutionary tapestry seems to pinch upon the hybridity and mimesis of forms. We are introduced to the Rapux, deer-shaped oversized rabbits responsible for displacing the ungulates in most regions of the future Earth, carnivorous horanes and raboons, predatory primates who have adopted the appearance of large savanna felines, and the vortex, the gargantuan whale-like descent of modern penguins, having evolved to occupy the empty niche left by the great cetacean's extinction. Although the evolutionary pressures leading to such transformations are consistently portrayed with the utmost realism, as might be expected from Dixon's paleontological expertise, the strictly instructional or illustrative scientific value of the enterprise ultimately becomes subordinated to the role, the role of pre-association, and what can only be described as a Roger Kewa's disposition toward the extraordinary and absolutely marvelous. Arguably, in these instances, his imagination truly reaches its greatest heights. Among the most exceptional are the parachrew, a small rodent endowed with an umbrella-like tail that allows the juveniles of the species to glide in the wind, the cleftback antelope, an animal with a deep spinal crevice that perfectly forms a symbiotic nest for insectivorous birds, and the fluor, a ground-dwelling, vibrantly flower-faced bat that seems to arise from the stuff of childhood nightmares and surrealist fairy tales. 
These works are dominated by profound uncanniness, reinforcing the overarching sense of displacement and alienation wrought by images of worlds with few or no points of human reference. Upon a closer glance, a leopard in the tree in the forest of Darwin Four is not quite anything mammalian, but a fearsome dagger wrist, customarily feeding by liquefying the remains of their prey. Most disconcertingly to the anthropocentric viewer, perhaps, Barlow's alien organisms lack eyes, having been replaced by natural selection with sonar and infrared sensory and communication apparatus. Likewise, in Vandermeer's simply named Area X, an uninhabited strip of Florida coastline altered by an inexplicable cosmic event that has made biology follow the logic of dreams. Dolphins with human eyes swim through the marshes, amorphous creatures that secrete shedded faces of deceased expeditioners lie in wait, and growths of moss unnervingly take the shapes of former human inhabitants of a dilapidated village. If, according to Herbert Marcuse, the image of freedom proper, not merely expressed as the negation of unfreedom, presently only survives aesthetically in dreamlike and surreal iconography, works like Dixon's and Barlow's constitute the biological articulations of a future beyond repression. They are a picture of the world as it might be or could be, the course of evolution no longer obstructed by subjugation to use value and exploitation, but exalting in all of its libidinal, desirous, and cross-fertilizing potential. This liberatory essence necessarily has an inherently erotic character, as attested to by the predominantly hermaphroditic wildlife of Darwin Four, who imply that biological sex categories are no more than a mere evolutionary contingency. Similarly, one might look to Fantastic Planet, in which the formation of universal solidarity, following the reduction of human beings to domesticated pets and vermin to be exterminated, rests upon the disruption of the sexual logic of domination of the extraterrestrial oppressor class. Directly expanding upon the traditional surrealist equivalency between the exploration of geographic extremities and the foray into the waterlogged terrain of the unconscious, in closing I would like to briefly draw attention to Max Caffard's 1990s Surregionalist Manifesto, which brilliantly captures the alluring potency of these prodigiously unruly topographies. The Codex, the distant future Earth of After Man, Darwin IV, and Area X are all superlative imaginary representations of what Caffard terms the Antarctic region, an eco ecologically promiscuous locale of total displacement. A concept that appears to me to be at least par partly traceable to the abandoned humanless zone of the Strugatsky Brothers' roadside picnic, it is crucial for Kaffard that the region has no borders, no boundaries, no frontiers, no state lines. Because it is borderless, the region is inherently somewhere one becomes lost and never returns from. Instead, those who enter camouflage become overgrown with kudzu, assimilate. The region is a space characterized by overabundance, hybridization, and erotic excess. Miscegenation is the rule. Kapar's interior mental location of this unadulterated id is the swamp of the Mississippi, or as he prefers to call it, Mesichave Delta, a place that shimmers with heat, haze, and flood water, crisscrossed by creeping vines and colonies of introduced species. Crafting a totem image for his vision of a revolutionary green politics, Kapar poetically evokes the maze-like sprouting of the merlitan, or chayote, a plant omnipresent across the American South. Quote, spreading everywhere, covering all, trespassing all boundaries, respecting no lines of property, breeding promiscuously, abundantly, indiscriminately, offering its fruit to all in limitless profusion, end quote. For this is what all glimpses of the land of unlimited possibilities offer to us. Nothing less than the specter of freedom itself, of pleasure without interruption or end. Thank you.
Something else? Reptile. Is it um, male, female, hermaphroditic, something else? <laughs> Almost male. Does it have a tail, and if so, does it use it in any particular way? It has a very short, broad tail. Uh, A short tail with a large girth. And it uses this tail, not as a normal tail, but as a suction cup. And it will suction cup itself to the roof of a cave. Not the deep interior of the cave, but the mouth of the cave, so that there's still light coming in. Does it consume, like, things inside the cave, or does it just sleep there? It consumes... In a passive slash predatory way, when it suctions itself to the roof of the cave, it resembles a sort of rounded stalactite. Is stalactite is the one that goes down? Or stalagmite? Stalactite. Tight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another species of creature that feeds on stalactites because of the minerals found there. And it will approach this creature that looks like a stalactite, drawn in, and then the creature opens its whole body and pulls in the stalactite eater and closes up again. But it's a very quick and painless death. It is a cycle of life. So, is this creature, does it purposely um, make the death of its prey painless? Is it aware of that? Or is it just how it happens to be? Um, Purpose, purposely. Because it does not like having to consume another being. Uh, In some senses, it has evolved against its own will in this sense. And so, over many generations, these creatures have taught each other how to consume in such a way as to cause no pain at all. How ethical. Is it actually pleasant to be eaten by this creature? As pleasant as falling asleep would be. If you could fall asleep at the drop of a hat. Pretty Death, what is the name of this creature? Professor Albert. Oh, it, it's a name that it's given itself, but cannot be pronounced precisely with human mouths and tongues. But our approximation would be something along the lines of Plorpen. <laughs> what is the traditional name that the native people have given it? The native people who have interacted with this creature, but interacted more like witnessed, because they always leave it alone. 
is um, is is Hazaka, which is evocative of the rapid way that it will open its body and absorb its prey. Hazaka. But we just call it Plorpin. Does it have any kind of call? Does it make any noises? <laughs> it makes a deep rhythmic clicking noise from its from its throat and you can hear it resonating against the walls of its shell. Is its musculature tender or firm? On the inside, firm. But on the outside, it doesn't have, you know, it's a, it's a shell, it's kind of like a coconut. But does it have an exoskeleton? So is, the, is it an exoskeleton or is it kind of like a scale? Like a turtle. Like a turtle shell, yeah. How does the Hazaka feature in the myths of the native people? Is it possessed by the good spirit or the evil spirit? The Hazaka is interesting because due to its nature of consuming, but doing so in a very merciful way, It's a mix of good and evil. And is the closest approximation that the Native people have of something that just is what it is. Is this kind of an aspirational figure for the native people? Aspirational in the sense that the, the, the native people also have to consume not just plants but also animals. And so they also seek to, like the Hazaka, um, end the lives of animals in as merciful and quick away as the Hazaka does. So it is, you know, an aspiration, yes. Is there a, a god or a goddess in the pantheon of the people that is represented by the body or the head of the Hazaka? <laughs> yes. And this god looks just like the Hazaka. What's his name? But has legs. <laughs> the name? Yeah, of the deity. Um, um, Hazolo. Hazolo is from the language of the native people, means eternal being. And uh, Haka is, you know, it's the root of the, the common root. Professor Alvaro, you've spent many decades studying this animal and written many books, and I'm wondering if there's any personal antidotes or, or reasons why you were so drawn to this um, creature. Per- personal reasons or anecdotes? Yes. <laughs> um, 
Well, I've always been fond of... I've always been interested in the cycles of life that occur in nature. Animals that consume plants, and then animals that consume those animals, and then animals that consume those animals. The cycles of consumption seem to be inevitable, and yet so often are they painful. Painful for the animal and painful to witness. It is what it is. It, it's, it is what it is, but it can be slow and painful death. Um, but with this creature, when I witnessed it, it was an entirely different way of... Uh, of, absor- of, 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 of interacting with, with, with prey. A way that is much more merciful. While still, you know, it is what it is. I need to eat you. I need to take your energy. But I do it in a way that doesn't hurt you. And I think that that is a great metaphor for life, in a way. That yes, there's this thing that I need to do, and I have no way around it, but I make it as painless as possible. And what does the female of the species look like? If this one is male. Almost, I'm sorry, almost male. Right, yeah, so there are not females, there are almost females. <laughs> and they are, in a strange way, both longer and shorter at the, ta- at the same time. And we, with our human eyes, cannot actually perceive this simultaneity of longer and shorter than the almost males, but that is the case. The males can see this, though, and um, it triggers within them a a desire to court. Oh, tell me more about the uh, courtship. <laughs> I take it this is a thing you witnessed. Yes, yes. Much. Well, it, the courtship rituals. It is, uh, you know, the prime directive <laughs> with this creature is speed when consuming prey. It has to be fast because that's how it's painless, and so. This is such an important factor that it's even a, a, a sexually interesting feature. And the males will show off how quickly they can open and close their bodies by doing so in front of the almost females. I'm just like, whoosh. And, the, and the, the almost males that can do it the fastest are the most interesting to the almost females because the almost females say, yeah, they are the most ethical. They are, they... <laughs> they... You know, have put the most effort and, you know, have the genes where they really take care of the prey that they consume and make it as painless as possible. And that's who I want to call, and that's who I want to mate with. So that, that's what the tournament. So, how is the mating actually, in a physical sense, a ah, We are getting into the dirty details, aren't we? Well, they detach from the roof of the cave and and this makes him a little vulnerable but then on the ground 
they have a couple of muscles in them that allow it to, that allow them to roll around on the ground. And they eventually roll around in such a way that their suction cups are facing each other. <laughs> and they then connect. And then they each open themselves up, which has the effect of sucking out all the air from between the suction cups. And that also draws out the, you know, the, the, the male... Uh, uh, let's just call it... Appendage. <laughs> what? Appendage. Well, the, the male uh, seed. <laughs> and the female, the female egg. Because it creates, yeah, suction, it creates this suction motion, or, or this, you know, this vacuum that draws out the male seed, draws out the egg, and causes them to mix together in this little vacuum of a container that has been created. And then they close, or, and then the male closes up first, and then that squirts this concoction back into the female. <laughs> and then she closes, and then they detach from each other. So then now, the, the uh, seed egg mix is in the female. Fertilization occurs in the... That's that. <laughs> and does the um, the almost female, does she then lay that egg again, or does she give birth to live young? You know, it's tricky because uh, this tends to happen at night, and it's very hard to see. But from what I have witnessed, um, she lays the eggs, and they attach themselves to the roof of the cave in a similar way that the suction cup. But, you know, they don't have suction cups. The eggs are just very sticky and stick. <coughs> So she, like, lays them on the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. And they hang from the ceiling like water droplets. Thank you, Professor Alvaro. This is a oh. riveting topic. Riveting. Absolutely my pleasure. Ha <laughs> ha
there is a singular gray cloud that's very big, but you can see a lot of sky around it, too, because we're all standing on a vast open plain, nothing but grass in all directions, and the sky above. And for some reason, we're moving in a circle, counterclockwise, under the cloud. We're moving in the circle because I'm chasing Hazel, and Hazel is chasing Stephen, and Stephen is chasing James, and James is chasing Tony, and Tony is chasing me. We can't catch each other. If only we could catch each other. Maybe this cloud would finally bring a little rain. I propose that we all stretch up our long gray trunks towards the cloud. And we stand upon our hind legs and we wave our front legs in the air and we stomp as hard as we can with all of our massive weight and our large gray ears flop from side to side. As we stomp and stomp, we create thunder. We also create a thousand orange tulips which burst out from the ground and are consumed by rabid geckos who smile before jumping in to a little airplane which they fly under the sea singing a lovely song. The geckos fly down to the sea where they're supposed to be. Our ritual is complete. There's a knock at the door. We don't know who it is. (laughs) Stephen goes to answer. Oh, he says. He opens the door. He says, it's release. Oh, sure. I don't think I've ever seen. Hey, what's up? Hi. Hey. I'm sorry. It's just one of these chairs. Oh, that's perfect. No, that'll be great. Thank you. Sorry for interrupting the flow. We're getting rolling right now in the middle of the store. Something about geckos. Yeah, in the water. The geckos. They thank us and they say goodbye, goodbye. And then they fly the airplanes down to the city where they belong. And when they're there, there's a big gecko parade through the streets, welcoming them back. And there's banners 
trumpets and all sorts of weird gecko instruments and the party rages for hours and the geckos get drunk on gecko mead and as they stumble out of the gecko tavern hall where they drank all their mead they pass out on the pavement and never awaken because gradually they're transformed into murals on the pavement and there's a giant gecko mural in the shape of a circle of geckos and the cloud reappears over them we walk over the pavement over the murals pictures of geckos on the ground. We contemplate them because they still have the same shine to their uh, in their skin as when they were fully formed. We keep walking and look up at the cloud and wonder what to do. Cloud tears off its skin and rains its blood on us and on the geckos, which reinflate, become balloons, floating up to the cloud. I wake up and remember that I am in an elephant, and I wonder. What does the blood of the sky make me now that I have tasted it? I can feel my tail starting to regrow, and I remember every time that I've grown a tail before, the blood that came out of the tip when it was bit off by took it up into the cloud with them every other time before after every other reverie and they take it up there so that it doesn't get lost because it's an important part of growing new things is cutting off the old again and again one of the geckos that had turned into a balloon was especially good and beautiful and it was the perfect gecko in the sky and it was finally done the perfect gecko was made and a hand from the sky snatched the gecko and took it to space variety of objects that can be found inside the cloud cut off over and over from thousands 
lives is like a massive university research library full of books you will never read. You can't even fathom the magnitude of Why do we keep falling into dreams? Are we not elephants? Should we not stomp everything into the ground? Are we not big? Are we not heavy and strong? Sometimes a dream falls into you like an apple falling from a tree. And it falls on you because of gravity, because of something very natural, very normal, and permanent. And something sprouts from the apple, like an elephant's trunk, or a gecko's tail, or a worm, or a piece of spaghetti, or a letter in a book that you can't open. But it's all right there, laying in your lap, waiting, pregnant with the possibility of knowing, even though there is no door inside. Suddenly the elephants stopped, like they always did. And the ground split open. Check of the time. <laughs> Falling so long, my trunk just flapping in the wind, my speed getting faster and faster and faster. The walls around me changed colors to red and then green and then blue and then white and then black. And then they turned to rock. And I could see the bottom approaching. Alvaro, the elephant, lands in a giant pool of spaghetti that's writhing organically. Spaghetti or something like spaghetti. And there's a, a massive cavern, and there are noises in the distance. Noises. We've never heard a rumbling of notions shakes the moisture from the teeth on the cavern walls as they try to close their mouths and keep the spaghetti inside of the books. But They're just letters, after all, and they can't forget, and they can't be forgotten, and 
the unknowable sounds are expressed in these new letters as they tangle together and as they get caught in the throats of the mouths of the cave. And the elephant that is Alvaro is written into the core of the earth is written in the very center page of the book of all the world unreadable unknowable except for the elephant that was Alvaro so peaceful up here and I'm looking down and I'm seeing these dunes with rivers running around them and they look like the lobes of a brain I can't see below the cloud cover along the shoreline. <clears throat> At a certain point, the end turning into glass citadels which are on fire. The warmth of their burning is felt by my feathers. I see the well and women gathered around the well and talking and laughing. See great forest. into that forest and there's a bright orb somewhere down there and it's creating long shadows that radiate outwards long shadows of the trees and and long rays of light and looking at it 
brings peace to me. The Black River of Tar finds its way through the forest. It fills me with despair. The fumes from the tar create a draft that lifts me up. Yes, I feel myself being pushed higher and higher by the draft. I can sense things within the forest that I can't see. They're still very far away. I see all the mice scurrying around. These clouds seem scaly, like a snake's skin. The floor of the forest is like graham cracker. There is a black river in this forest, and its spirit is a snake. Thirsty, flowing to the sea. I'm looking at the the ridges and plateaus surrounding all of this. I realize that there's that all of this is 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 living upon a, a deep impression in the shape of a massive, massive foot left by a giant who walked here centuries and centuries ago. I see the skeleton of a giant resting by the river of Tar and one of its eyes is a shining green gemstone I see somewhere in that footprint a dark well where magic orbs rise up (coughs) and I know cannot tell how I know that that is where an old wound had festered in the foot of the giant. I dive into the well, take a little bird bath. I can see you there in the well. You resemble a gold nugget floating in water. I fly down to the rim of the well. I call down. Shake it off and fly back up. 
Nice. This strange, <coughs> muddy, mud beach of foot imprint around this well. Yes. I think the long ones have been here. I see they left some food behind. They always do. All these crumbs, all these graham cracker crumbs on the ground. Delicious. Mm. Take off back into the air. I see seven metal helmets scattered there. The air takes on a purple sort of mauve haze like twilight. In the distance, just past the forest, I see the smoke gently billowing from the industrial waste of the city. It's time, I think, to be roosting. I return to my little golden garden. At the outskirts of the city, I see a stinking heap of dead frogs. smooth pearls I can see my reflection in the pearls <coughs> bird face and I stare intently into my own eyes the magician comes from behind the heap and waves his wand at you. And as he does, I look back at my eyes in the reflection of the pearls and see that my eyes are themselves planets with life and creatures on them. The planets are marbles, and the marbles are galaxies, and the galaxies are tapeworms, and the frogs. In my little nest in the garden wall, I sit and watch the birds entranced by the pearls 
Don't they know the crows are coming for the pearls? The pearls of great price. Planets have sent the the crows. The crows will deliver justice to the people of the city. They won't notice. Lightning strikes between the birds. I reach out and touch the lightning. And I feel it course through me. And it's not painful. shines in the distance. One day I might go there. But I don't know if I'll go there today. Feathers sprout from the ground like hairs from flesh. Feathers form a long rope that stretches into the sky and out of sight. The feathers wind like a spiral. Braided. And striped with gray-green. Foundation of the world. 
The Salamander piece was performed by Ray Swin and myself, later joined by Priscilla Smith at the Laboratorium at No Tomorrow Gallery in Underground Atlanta sometime in autumn 2022. <laughs> Victoria Lyon wrote and delivered the lecture The Land of Unlimited Possibilities, Speculative Biologies as Surrealist Accomplices. The naturalist lecture on the Hazaka was given by Professor Alvaro Michael and Hazel and Stephen Klein and myself were in the audience asking questions. Elephants and Geckos was a collective story game performed by Alvaro Michael, Stephen, Hazel, Raylis Cassette, and Tony Krishi and myself. The game of the journey of birds was written by Sam Jogo and performed by Hazel Klein, Stephen Klein, Tony Krishi and myself. Hazel's song, Subcellular, was used to accompany the elephants and the birds. All other music and production by me, James Robert Foster. So for now, we return to the territory we know. But not for too long. Nature's always got some new trick up her sleeve. And we may think we have a grip on what's going on. We usually do think that. But the cryptid, the alien, is always waiting, just around the corner. Contact. The sheer electricity of contact. And things like the force of gravity, as it were, of mumbling planet. We're glad you joined us. See you next time.